This is Asian Insider and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now, July 2020 may be remembered as the month US-China relations took a real nosedive. Now, amid an almost daily diet of tit-for-tat measures, a lot of it from the United States, here in Washington, D.C., President Donald Trump said he has not spoken with China's President Xi Jinping whom, if you recall, he has called a great friend and someone he has great respect for. And he added that he does not intend to speak with him. Of course, that may change at any moment, given the volatile times we live in. But in Beijing, Foreign Minister Wang Yi said relations with the United States are at their lowest in 40 years. Also in July, the United States, in a new position paper, firmly aligned itself with Southeast Asian states, which have overlapping claims with China in the South China Sea. On July 13, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said, quote, we are making it clear Beijing's claims to offshore resources across most of the South China Sea are completely unlawful, as is its campaign of bullying to control them, unquote. You could also say that the relationship between China and India is at a very low ebb following the clash in Ladakh in June that left many Indian soldiers dead and probably some Chinese as well, though we do not know that number. Today, I have on the line Richard Haidarian in Manila. Richard is a political scientist, sought after commentator, I should say. So thank you, Richard, for being with us. And also, author of the book, The Indo-Pacific, Trump, China, and the New Struggle for Global Mastery. And here in DC, we have Dr. Aparna Pandey, director of the Hudson Institute's Initiative on the Future of India and South Asia, who, by the way, has her second book about to arrive, in fact, available for order or pre-order right now. It's called Making India Great, The Promise of a Reluctant Global Power. Now, Richard, thank you very much, both of you, for being uh, with us today. Thank now, you. Richard, if I may start Let with you, the U.S. has taken this very strong position, some say four or five years too late, but certainly it is a strong position. It has also in recent days deployed two aircraft carriers in the region. Now, how exactly does the U.S. position change anything on the ground or rather on the water in this case? Well, I think there has been a lot of analysis or coverage of the part whereby the United States questions the lawfulness or the legal basis of China's claims in the area and somehow present it as some major escalation in American position in the South China Sea. I'm not very sure I agree with that because, you know, as I remember very well back in 2014, for instance, the U.S. State Department released a very detailed study of China's claims in the South China Sea. And it made it very clear that the Nine Dash Line, for instance, or historic rights claim of China were not really consistent with modern international law, not to mention China has never been really uh, precise about its coordinates and its legal basis because of the vagaries of China's claims in the area. Uh, not necessarily vagaries of what China does on the ground, but in terms of its claims. So the rejection of China's claims, uh, its expansive nine dash line claims is not new. Uh, I think many people are making too much out of that. What perhaps is new or also um, marks a culmination of the Trump administration's increasingly confrontational approach towards China and the South China Sea is the part whereby it indirectly affirms the maritime and so and you could even say territorial claims of other uh, uh, smaller claimant states in the South China Sea. So, uh, you know, first of all, it's very interesting for, for China to mention Natuna Vesar, for instance, Indonesia's claims in the North Natuna Sea, uh, somehow saying that, you know, Indonesia's claims and the Nine Dash Line are entwined. So therefore, even though Indonesia is a neutral party, now 
it's like an effective party the South China Sea disputes. And we have seen already rise in tensions between Indonesia and China over the past few months, not to mention Indonesia also invoking the Philippine Arbitration Award uh, in the latest ASEAN summit, among others, and also submitting a note of verbality to the United Nations questioning the legal basis of China's claim. This is where uh, I agree with you that this is a few years late because a lot of things we're seeing from the United States and also from other countries should have done been done way earlier. You also signed a statement where uh, China, uh, uh, you also signed a statement that the United States is mentioning, for instance, the Vanguard Bank and implying that mm -hmm. that doesn't belong to China because it falls within uh, Indonesian waters and continental shelf. The same thing with the James Shoal, which is supposed to be the southernmost tip of China's nine-dash line. Again, China is not only uh, rejecting China's claim over that shoal, or actually it's a low tide elevation, but suggesting that it belongs to Malaysia. But I think where it gets very interesting, and I'm not trying to be parochial here because I'm from the Philippines, is the language of the statement when it comes to Philippines' claims. Particularly when you look at the statement uh, and the language it adopts on the Scarborough Shoal, which is claimed by the Philippines, falls within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone and continental shelf, but now under the de facto jurisdiction of China since a naval standoff in 2012. And then you have the Mischief Reef and the second, second Thomas uh, Shoal. So the Mischief Reef is now already militarized by China, but it falls within the Philippines' uh, exclusive economic zone. China got it back in 1994-1995. The U.S. didn't do much back then, saying that we have nothing to say on these issues. But now it seems the United States is taking a different position and saying that the Mischief Reef and the Second Thomas Shoal are more or less the extension of the Philippine continental shelf. The U.S. doesn't say it very explicitly. And during a conference we had with CSIS, our keynote speaker before a panel discussion was Assistant Secretary Steelwell, and I kind of pushed him on that issue. Does this mean that the United States is affirming the Philippines' claim on the Second Thomas Shoal or Mischief Reef or Scarborough Shoal? Again, we saw a little bit of vagueness in terms of responses of state officials, but if you compare it to the statements from the previous American administrations and even from the statements of the Trump administration over the past few years, this is the most explicit, if not the first ever time I see an indirect or de facto American recognition of the Philippine claims over the second Thomas Shoal, where we still have troops positioned there, and over the mischief reef, which perhaps is a foregone conclusion because China has militarized it, but also effectively over Scarborough Shoal. And this has major operational ramifications because were China to take aggressive or unilateral action, whether against Filipino troops stationed over the second Thomas Shoal or whether there was a resistance by the Philippines to any attempt by China to reclaim or militarize the Scarborough Shoal, then my argument is that you can argue better than ever that the mutual defense treaty between the Philippines and the United States has to be activated and Pentagon has to make an intervention in an event of a similar kind of contingency in the area. So I think this is where the statement has very important legal, but I would even say operational ramifications, especially for allies like the Philippines uh, in the South China Sea. Okay, while we're in that, while we're on that region, very quickly, uh, more broadly, Richard, uh, in terms of ASEAN, and several ASEAN countries, as we know, have overlapping claims. And China has created these fait accompli, frankly, over the years. They, they still exist. So the question is, you know, what happens then? Where's the line has already been crossed? So very quickly, what are ASEAN's options now? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, I come from a country known for boxers. And I always say, I mean, if this is 12 rounds of boxing, we're really just round two and three. Let's not forget, the Philippines still controls between eight to nine land features in the area. Vietnam controls more than 20 land features in the Spratlys alone. Taiwan still controls the Pratas, 
Malaysia still has everything that he has been controlling for over the decades, and Taiwan still has Ito Aba. So I don't really agree with this idea that, you know, the game is over, China's dominated the area. We're not there yet. China is yet to impose an air defense identification zone or create the sprawling network of bases to be able to support that. China is yet to evict other countries, including the Philippines, from half a dozen or more land features under their control in areas like the Spratlys and even more for Vietnam. Uh, in uh, Taiwan, Malaysia, even the Philippines now, all of them are fortifying their position on the ground, developing their airstrips and defensive capabilities. So I, I don't agree that the game is over, that China has won and let's just try to make a deal. I don't agree with that. I think there's a lot to still uh, win here or still a lot to preserve, especially for smaller countries. My frustration, though, is this. You know, over the past few years, I hear a lot of praise for Vietnam. People are saying, oh, Vietnam is standing up to China. They're doing a fantastic job. Again, Assistant Secretary Steelwell last year in a talk in Kuala Lumpur was saying everyone, you know, ASEAN should follow the lead of Vietnam. You know, as a, as a Filipino, I remember very well back in the days, not under Duterte, but under the Aquino administration, we dared to take China to international court. And we mm -hmm. proved that China's claims in the area have no legal basis. And throughout those years, not a single ASEAN country was openly supportive of us. Even Vietnam, even Vietnam was always try to, you know, put a healthy distance between itself and the Philippines. And the Vietnamese send us a lot of signals that they might file a parallel case against China over both Paracels and Spratlys. Guess what? They never did that. From what I understand, the legal, the legalities of uh, in Vietnam's potential arbitration case against China, all of that has been resolved. They have fantastic legal minds down there, and I've met them consistently over the years. But their political leadership has not risked confronting China legally on this issue. So my problem is that now you have suddenly Vietnam standing up to China and threatening arbitration award. That's fantastic. But we wish this came way earlier so that people like Rodrigo Duterte would not have an excuse and say, well, Americans are wishy-washy, which was quite true with the Obama administration. The ASEAN is not supporting us. Maybe we should have a, a deal with the Chinese, got a deal with the Chinese because we're not getting the love and support we need. So how I wish right. Vietnam was taking as strong stance back in the days, the same with Indonesia. For years saying we are neutral, we have nothing to say, and then now suddenly they're invoking the Philippine Arbitration Award. And then Malaysia now also suddenly pushing with unilateral exploration and challenging China's claim through a nota verbale to China last December. How I wish this happened back in the day in 2016 when the Arbitration Award came out and we would have coordinated that with the Trump administration and push it forward. So the question here is not lack of resistance, but div divided resistance and lack of timely coordinated resistance. This is the problem in ASEAN today. Okay, Aparna, if I may come to you, a very different problem, but also quite similar in terms of, you know, creating a faith accompli on the ground and so forth. And this is still very much in play. What are India's options now? I see a lot of rethinking going on about beefing up in the maritime domain, for example. India has moved up the, div the delivery of uh, French fighter jets and has ordered more from Russia. What are the options being thought of now? So India's options um, are still the same that they were earlier. India may start exercising them finally. I guess that would be the difference. Uh, one, um, India has long talked about boosting its infrastructure on the border. Um, India has been doing that for a few years now, but it needs to up its game and do it quicker uh, than it has done in the last few years. Um, and India needs to bring in more military equipment. 
it has done that in the last two months maybe it should have done that in the last year or two then it would have been better able to actually stand up and push back against china um along the himalayan border because the sort of you know a lot of what uh, richard said about china and what china is doing in south china sea applies on the himalayan border as well the only difference is that it is india alone out here i mean uh, there's nepal and bhutan but at the end of the day i mean it is india alone which is pushing back against china and india will need to up its game in that region because um sort of for at least for a long time to come um india will be the only power and india sort of can get support from united states can get support uh, uh, from france and israel but it will have to do a lot of the work itself second part india has normally neglected its maritime border with china um india still remains a land oriented power even though most of its border is sea and so india and india has an advantage in the indian ocean region not just because it has allies um in southeast asia it has allies in the middle east and in the entire region but india has normally only looked at the india china conflict on the border on the land border third um the united states has shown um not just support but actually open support for india this time around um 3 years ago uh, there was an india china border conflict in doklam at that time most of the american support was muted uh, maybe it was because india asked washington dc maybe because it was dc's decision but this time it's different secretary pompeo uh, secretary esper assistant secretary stillwell and a host of other american officials have actually come out and said that um it is china's aggressive behavior that they stand with india um the only difference would be that sort of you know um they unlike other countries and unlike countries in south china sea or east china sea india is not an ally it's not an alliance partner of the united states um and i don't think it will become that though it will boost its uh, its relationship further Okay so India has invited Australia to participate in its upcoming annual Malabar Finally. naval ex- naval exercises which featured Japan and the United States as well so together with India and Australia these countries make up the quad which thus far has been an informal security dialogue do you see the quad becoming something more aparna um not i mean i hope it does but hope is not a policy and the reason i say that is it took a very it took india 11 years to agree to join the quad um india sort of japan joined malabar and then india as japan not to be part of malabar for a few years because of fears what china would would do then japan again was allowed back in the malabar now most likely australia will join it this year so the thing is i mean if you want to confront a country which has not given up territorial claims dating back to the 1950s irrespective of how deep the economic relationship is with that country and i mean china why would you believe that inviting or disinviting a country will upset china and if you believe that then you have not displayed enough strategic uh, policy sort of to to combat that country so yes australia should be part of malabar it should have been part of malabar some years ago uh, mm-hmm. but will quad become something more i don't know um india's external affairs minister gave a speech the other day and in that he said that 
India will not become part of an alliance and this we mean security alliance not partnership um, and that the days of alliance and alliance partners are over. Um, I do not know if that is really true but what I am not sure of is if India will really look at Quad as something which is akin to a military security alliance. Until the day it does that, Quad will be a wonderful grouping but it will not be a security grouping. Okay, okay. Richard, uh, we have about 30 seconds left. What is the view from the Philippines on the Quad, on the potential of the Quad? I mean, the Philippines is not part of it, but you know, it's all very relevant. Well, as far as I know, most of the Quad meetings among the heads of state all happen in Manila for some strange reason, right? <laughs> uh, including back in 2017, right? Um, well, I think what we're looking in the future is a quad plus arrangements. I think the quad is already reaching out to countries like Vietnam, to South Korea, perhaps Indonesia and a more independent, truly independent leaning uh, Philippines after the Duterte administration 2022. They could have their kinds of arrangements with the quad. Now, I don't think quad is going to move towards a kind of a allies versus axis of China, uh, but you know, it's very important to have an increasingly congealed quad as some sort of an alliance of deterrence uh, for China, because you know, God forbid, if some major conflict happens in this part of the world, whether over Taiwan or over the South China Sea, I think uh, you should make it very clear to the China that the possibility of even tighter security cooperation among major powers in this part of the world is not something improbable or even impossible. So I think. Quad should be over the horizon and the Quad should more and more reach out and do capacity building among smaller Southeast Asian powers so that they can also stand up on their own. So it may not need to be even a full-fledged defense alliance to be as effective as it as we want it to be in terms of deterring China's worst instincts and intentions. Okay, Richard Aparna, thank you very much again for your insights today. All the best out there. So, U.S.-China relations definitely on an increasingly downward trajectory. But a lot of people, a lot of analysts say that China has overreached and is beginning to see real pushback, or if not pushback, firm resolve on the part of, of other powers, like India, certainly like the U.S. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirmal Ghosh.